Hello and welcome to episode 66 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. You'll be joined right now by Brandon Islib. Brandon is a writer and the author of the book, Playing for a Winner, How Baseball Team Success Raises Players' Reputations. Brandon, thanks for taking the time to join the podcast today. Hey, thanks for having me on. Well, I ask everyone this right at the top. Tell me what initially attracted you to baseball in the first place. My eighth birthday party, which was in the fall of 1993, uh, some church friends gave me some packs of Topps baseball cards. I had never seen anything like them, and I started, I, I needed to know what the numbers and the letters on the back of these cards meant, and that just dove me straight into pretty much everything the kids section of the library had. And then kind of marching through the adult section, different people in my life were handing me Bill James. So I was I was weaning myself on that and just everything took off from there. Do you still collect cards today? I don't collect cards, but I will tell you, uh, I made a thing for my work office. It's sort of a Sudoku of tops cards. It's got it's got all the teams, two players per team alphabetized and no top tier repeats on a row or column and because i'm a red sox fan i put shekels cards in the place of yankees (laughs) i appreciate that that's very good now tell me about the book itself and what you hoped to accomplish when you set out to write it for several years i had been developing a statistic called momentum which was an attempt to measure relative team reputations you know uh ESPN has a lot of power rankings, and of course, Baseball Prospectus has different versions as well. And there are coaches' polls in other sports that are this hybridized measure of, I mean, essentially team reputation. There's some amount that's that's about what the, what the teams are doing right this second, but we don't just believe every 4-0 or 5-0 start. We're measuring that against what what's come before. And so it takes... It takes time for team reputations to adjust. And from from what I can tell, it takes actual days, days spent in pennant contention for for us, for the public, for the writers to adjust their idea, their sense of where a team is up or down. And so after enough time of measuring this and reading articles talking about Derek Jeter, he's the face of baseball, he's retiring, who's the new face of baseball, and these sorts of amorphous concepts, uh, what I realized is if I took kind of a weighted average of a team's relative reputation over a season, then I could use that as a multiplier on player performance and get a sense of how much a player was reputed to have contributed to his team. The And so you get a measurement of, well, how much did playing for a winning team, how much did being on the 90s Yankees, how much did being on the 90s Braves matter versus being on the Padres of the same time? And what what you get through all that is in, in the same way that you can translate pitching and hitting statistics from one year and one ballpark into a different year and ballpark, some of the things I'm doing let you translate entire careers of of narrative into other decades and go, okay, what would Derek Jeter's career have been like if we put him on the 1950s A's or the 1970s A's or even the 1970s Yankees? And you can start moving some of these things around. And with that, I thought I'd also just kind of tell the story of pennant races 
moving forward, a lot of the book, besides dealing with the statistical concepts, is reinvigorating the idea of telling these pennant races forward as they occurred, rather than just looking at end-of-season records and trying to rebuild what happened. And when you say you can look at Derek Jeter and put him on the 1970s Padres or the 1950 Yankees, you could put him in a different environment, you're not adjusting his statistics like you can do on baseball reference, you're adjusting the some of the narrative that may surround him if he were playing on a worse team, correct? Yes. So every team, based on this weighted average of the momentum t- statistic I was describing, if they were the alpha team in their league all year, that's going to, that's saying that there were more reasons to write about that team because they were in first place or close to first place every day of the season. They came in with expectations of being the top team and they ended up being the top team. So they'd be written about every day. And the the exploits of those players, regardless of who they were, they would they would be written about as well. And of course, when a team is in the spotlight, it's going to highlight whoever's the most productive. So it's not like you can just be the backup and get as much recognition as the stars. Productivity is still a key component in getting famous and getting recognized. But the spotlight of your team, and my statistics give various various grades. They're from 1 to 1.6 for every, every team out there. It means you can say, well, what if we had given... Derek Jeter's 1999 season for the Yankees, the narrative of the 1950 Yankees. I don't think that one was very different. Both teams were highly visible. But you could you could give Derek Jeter, say, the Andy Pettit treatment. What if he leaves New York for a couple of years, goes to some other team, then comes back? How much would that affect the performance? You can start taking individual player seasons and giving them around and moving them around. Um, a pretty good example would be uh, I found in the book and that um, that Chicago tends to elect its favorite sons to the Hall of Fame, helps them get in the Hall of Fame, regardless of pennant contention. The Cubs and the White Sox just haven't had a Yankees like sustained contention for a while. And so the writers just go, oh, who who's the best player on different eras of Cubs and White Sox sometimes? And they vote them. They help get them in. And so if you swapped Ryan Sandberg and Lou Whitaker, for example, maybe you put all of Lou Whitaker's career in Chicago, maybe you put all of Ryan Sandberg's career in Detroit, same productivity, just with different different narratives for their teams. And you start thinking through these things, and it's just giving baselines to the old arguments of, well, he only won because he played in New York, or he, he's only in the Hall of Fame because he played here or there. It provides a baseline for these discussions that's rooted in some numbers, that's rooted in the actual day-to-day narratives of teams, rather than just sitting there speculating ad nauseum. Yeah, and it's interesting because fame, and especially now where there's other ways to get famous outside of your abilities on the field, many more ways than there were in previous generations, fame is not just, it can't just be measured by success of a team. There are so many other things that go into that as well. Just the that the Cubs were on WGN for so long and were available to a national audience helped their reputation and made their players more known than they may not have been if they'd just been playing on regional networks. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and the 80s in particular, because you had TBS and you had WGN, but the other thing that's true about the 80s, and it's true of the current American League as well, 
the narrative is really scrambled. There weren't teams that were contending very often in back-to-back years. You know, the AL had, I think it was eight straight different teams in the World Series. It's hard to find the through line for the 80s narrative if you're talking about pennant contention, if you're talking about great teams. There there aren't dynasties in the 80s the same way there were in the 90s with the Braves and Yankees, uh, these days with the Cardinals. And so baseball's narrative wasn't giving a real handhold for anyone. And what replaced it was, well, what's on TV all the time? It's TBS and WGN. And so I think, you know, the, the Superstation era was kind of its own era. We have a bit less of that now. But I think it took extra precedence in the 1980s because there was so much league parity in both leagues. Let's back up a little bit and talk about one of the featured metrics in your book called Spotlight War. Talk about where that comes from and how you use regular war and adjust it up or down according to their spotlight. One of the basic formulas that underlies uh, the ideas in the book is that reputation equals productivity times spotlight. I mean, this this isn't just true for baseball, I don't think. It's true for life. Your reputation is a function of how much you've done and how much people have noticed it. If you make a podcast and for 20 years, but there are no listeners, well, you've been highly productive, but there's been no spotlight on it. And, and in the same way, you can take war, which is, I mean, it's a catch-all, it's a bit simplistic, but it is easily and directly comparable across eras, that you can use productivity there and multiply it by a team spotlight, which, again, in my conception, is a weighted average of this of this team reputation stat momentum, and get a, and spotlight war then represents more how much a player felt like they contributed. So take a six war season on a completely anonymous team, that spotlight war is going to remain six as you're multiplying six times the baseline of one. But any any amount your team was in the spotlight above that is going to raise that war proportionally. So a really famous team, maybe uh, at a 1.5 spotlight rating for the year, multiply that 1.5 by the six war, and now they have a nine spotlight war. And so their, their contribution to the story elevates their performance against someone who contributed just as much, but on a team that didn't factor into the narrative at all. One of the things that I noticed in your book is that modern players, active players, and players really of the expansion era are not nearly as famous as players from the past. Why do you suppose that is? That's by and large a function of division play, uh, all the current playoff layers that we have now. Because it used to be, in what a lot of people think of as the golden era of baseball. This is why, in part, they think of it as the golden era of baseball. Because if your team was in first place all year, well, they went straight to the World Series, the ultimate showdown. Nowadays, you can be in first place all year, but you have so many layers of playoffs to get to that there's this revolving door in the World Series and that that leads to more interesting baseball if you're actively following it. 
but it's harder for the public to pick up on who mattered in a given season what all they're doing is turning on the World Series in October. Um, and so I, in, in the book, I compare it, uh, the difference to the old days and now, to the difference between the TV franchise Lost and a Disney film. Disney films tend to be pretty straightforward. They tend to have few characters. You know who the heroes and villains are pretty much from the get-go. Usually the smile or evil grin gives it away, I suppose. But the point is it's intended to be easy to follow. It's, in, it's intended to be easy to jump into even if you're not an intrepid Disney movie fan. Whereas Lost, as far as I know, I haven't watched it, but you have to jump in kind of at the beginning to keep track of all the characters and all the storyline. Modern baseball is closer to Lost in that it requires a bunch of investment to understand why it is we got a Royals-Giants World Series or Indians-Cubs or, or these sorts of things, rather than it just being the Cardinals and Yankees every year. The olden days of baseball, the Mickey Mantle, the Babe Ruth, Joe DiMaggio kind of eras, that's the Disney film of Major League Baseball. The same few teams tended to be in the World Series every year, and that made it easier to follow for the people just reading the papers, the people who weren't that invested. It was easier for people on the Yankees and Dodgers teams to be famous, famous famous rather than just baseball famous, because baseball structure enabled that. I think it goes beyond that, too. I think Major League Baseball, in its current form, are bad at marketing individuals. I think that's something that the NBA does Without a doubt. well. And that Major League Baseball is not helping their own cause here. They are not making stars. They should Mike Trout and Bryce Harper and Clayton Kershaw should be household names, not just names of people who like baseball. But no one outside of baseball knows who these people are. There are no stars playing in baseball anymore. So I think that that's one of the things that play there. And I also think that a, a bigger issue here is that in the 60s and in the 50s and in the 20s, Major League Baseball didn't have so much competition in terms of attention, and now they do. And this is true with every other sport and every other thing, basically. There's a lot of things that can captivate people's minds and attention, and it's harder to become, while in a sense there's more ways to become famous, it's also harder to do so because there's so much out there. Yeah, and I, I, none of my book would dispute that. A lot of what my book is doing is just saying, hey, actually the narrative of baseball can explain the bulk of how teams get famous and the bulk of how players get famous. There's all, there are always going to be other variables that, that come in. I certainly don't think I've explained everything in, in this book. I, I say towards the beginning, if, if by the end of this book, I've given you the vocabulary and concepts to tell me why I'm wrong, this book is still a success because it's at least framing some of these issues and putting, putting some, putting some meat, putting some teeth into some of these arguments. But I agree that MLB has had a marketing problem. And I think part of it is down to that the commissioner is ultimately serving the owners and serving the business of baseball. And you know, for all the flack he took, I think Bud Selig understood very well what, what I was kind of getting at with the, with the Disney versus lost imagery that the, the addition of wild cards, the addition of competitive balance measures like revenue sharing, that all helps baseball on the inside. It helps make baseball a more interesting product for those who are invested in it. 
But at the same time, making your league structure that way makes it harder for non-fans to follow. And you can make your decisions kind of in one direction or the other. And for pretty much my entire baseball fandom, the last 23 years, baseball's been driving everything towards the already invested fans in terms of these structural and institutional elements. Does that, I mean, I like that as someone already invested, but it makes sense why people on the outside write these articles World Series time about how baseball is dying and where are all the ratings? Well, baseball is swimming in money, obviously. Things that they're doing to help the business have generally worked, but it's go it's at really the direct cost in some ways of these marketing things. And so what we're left with is baseball players being known for their appearances in pop culture kind of haphazardly and not that much for their productions on the field. A lot of people will know who Justin Verlander is just because he's with Kate Upton. And a lot of people know who Jose Canseco is because he dated Madonna. There, there are these tentacles that some baseball players put into pop culture that are remembered far more than their actual productivity. They they find other ways to become famous. And right now we have a group of players that by and large aren't doing that. And again, maybe that's because there are so many other opportunities for other stars to get to get that fame, stars from other sports. And those those sports are probably more interested in marketing to begin with. So it's sort of a snowball effect, I think. I want to ask you about a few players that you highlighted because you, you compared some of the spotlight war to the Hall of Fame and which Hall of Famers benefited the most from being under the spotlight and which sort of deserving players, let's focus on the deserving players who aren't in. And one of those reasons maybe why is their lack of spotlight or their lack of fame or momentum, however you want to call it. And some of those guys are guys that we've spent a lot of time talking about on the podcast before, Larry Walker, Edgar Martinez, Alan Trammell, Lou Whitaker, Tim Raines, who just got in on his final year this year. What do those guys all have in common to you? Trammell and Whitaker should have a better case in that they played entirely for one team. From all I can tell, playing your entire career for one team tends to help because because then the writers don't expect you to have carried the team into pendant contention every year. They understand that there's a rise and fall of your team that you can't entirely help. As for the others, their lack of round numbers and the fact that they jumped around teams hurts them. But a lot of it's just, um, in Larry Walker's case in particular, the two teams of his that were most in the spotlight really were the 94 Expos and the 95 Rockies, both of which lost sheer days of coverage to the players' strike. They they would have had a higher reputation if they had been allowed to keep contending, but they got they got months cut off of the seasons. And the rest of the time, when you're telling baseball stories through the mid-90s, you just don't talk about the late 90s Rockies. And so the stories of the Braves and Yankees get retold. The exploits of Larry Walker don't, because you just don't need to talk about the late 80s Expos a whole lot. You don't need to talk about the late 90s Rockies a whole lot. And so he feels like he's just kind of out there accumulating stats. And because he did that without any round numbers, for as far as the Baseball Writers Association of America is concerned, Larry Walker is above median wins above replacement for who the writers have voted in, but he's below 25th percentile for spotlight war. That's how much of a gap that that can make. 
where when you factor in sort of this narrative, this this feel good aura of how much he contributed to teams that mattered, it's just it's just not there. He compiled stats kind of in the dark, so to speak. And Edgar Martinez kind of suffers the same way. A lot of people in sort of popular writing will compare Edgar Martinez to David Ortiz. And the gap in war between them is pretty large. But when you look at Spotlight War, it's about even. And part of that is that Edgar Martinez had quite a bit of productivity before 1995, before the Mariners were any good. He won a batting title in 1992 that pretty much nobody talks about because the Mariners just weren't relevant in that time. So kind of the more casual fan, the the people just kind of looking at the end of the year stories, if they're comparing just Edgar Martinez's and David Ortiz's time in the spotlight, well then yeah, Ortiz comes way ahead. But if you're looking at their overall careers and adjusting for the fact that the 92 Mariners were a team in turmoil and I think also a team in last place, and you understand that that wasn't Edgar Martinez's fault, when when you start putting those memories back into his career stats, well then, yeah, he looks like an obvious Hall of Famer, at least to me. You mentioned David Ortiz, and we've mentioned Jeter earlier, and those guys are sort of two of the stars of the book. They get mentioned a lot, obviously because they played on notable teams in very big markets and won World Series, and that's great. And those are two great players, but I think, in fairness, it's not just about spotlight or that their teams were winning. It's that both Jeter and Ortiz were great in the postseason as well. And I think that it's not only that they were there, it's they were great when they were there. Yeah, and I, I do have... Spotlight does factor in postseason success in various ways. Uh, one of the biggest ways it does is in adjusting upward for beating a, a team in the playoffs with higher spotlight than your own team. That gives the proper credit to teams like the 69 Mets, who came in as pretty much anonymous as, as far as their contribution to the narrative. They just kind of contended in September and then just started beating everyone. I mean, and, and that, that kind of thing is hard to get out of looking at their end-of-season statistics. They won 100 games, but they had factored in not at all to the story until the very end. But by beating the powerhouse Orioles, adjusting the spotlight for beating the Orioles, and in, in essence stealing their spotlight, gives them the proper credit. And certainly along the way, the Yankees and Red Sox, you know, they pulverized the regular season, but they also had these postseason successes. If anything, I probably was too conservative in my measurements on postseason success. Um, I, I wanted to be a little bit conservative with my measurements because I wanted to keep it to things I could defend just that little bit easier. But I think, I think, yeah, the the postseason successes of of the Jeters and the Ortizes and Mariana Rivera. If anything, that pushes things upward. And again, that's a function of opportunity, just like career win totals are a function of opportunity, career save totals are a function of opportunity, career RBIs are a function of opportunity. So is the ability to go out in the postseason and play your game. Edgar Martinez, Larry Walker, they just didn't have these chances. And to go to Tim Raines for a moment, I think part of what hurt Tim Raines for a long time was that 
a lot of the high spotlight teams he was on was when he was at the end of his career and kind of in a part-time role. And so a lot of the easiest memories to pull up of Tim Raines are of aging left fielder in the mid-90s rather than dominant left fielder of the 80s. Who are some of the most famous players in baseball history? I know you have that sort of ranking separated just from the best players, but in terms of fame, who's your top 10? Top 10. Well, Babe Ruth is about, he's about a career or two ahead of everybody else. One one way I knew I was kind of on the right track was when Babe Ruth came ahead of just about everyone. Lou Gehrig is second, um, or maybe Mickey Mantle is second. I know they're two and three. Willie Mays is up there. Stan Musial. I, w- I was surprised, and I think it was a good testament to my stats measuring day-to-day contention that Stan Musial got as high as he did because, you know, the Cardinals weren't in the World Series from 1946 until 1964, I believe, but they contended in a number of years. They were still relevant to the story of a lot of different 50s seasons. And so Stan Musial gets very high, gets very high marks. Honus Wagner gets very high marks. The current leader, and it's not even close, is Albert Pujols, because he put up Ruthian numbers on a Cardinals team that was contending day in and day out. He's got about twice as much fame as second place, which is currently Robinson Cano. Now, you might think, well, Robinson Cano is not that famous, but the level of fame he's got over his career in my stat doesn't say he's that famous. He just happens to be second place right now. Yeah, and there's a big gap between the active players and their fame rating and some of the historic players that you mentioned previously. And it's interesting because Albert Pujols, surefire first ballot Hall of Famer, you can make a reasonable case that he's the best first baseman ever considering the era that he played in. No one knows who he is outside of baseball. He's just a guy. Same thing with Robinson Cano. He's just a guy. This is, again, it gets back to the problem. Baseball needs to address this. These players are baseball famous. They're not actually famous at all. My mother-in-law has no idea who any of these people are. Part of that, in I think in Pujols' case, is down to his personality. He just doesn't want that sort of spotlight. He certainly had, I think he certainly had the productivity. He certainly had the right team to embrace that if he wanted it, but it's sort of an unused pile of fame, if that makes any sense. As as opposed to some of the leaders of yesteryear, guys like Pete Rose, uh, Barry Bonds embraced the spotlight, even as he was willing to be a villain in a lot of ways. Uh, and, and these other guys, the DiMaggio's, and of course Joe DiMaggio would get a boost anyway from having been married to Marilyn Monroe. That sort of catapults him into another another area of our culture entirely. But a lot of these previous leaders embraced fame in a way that Albert Pujols hasn't. And I'll, I'll go with another name that was listed as a fame leader before Babe Ruth, but I think would fall into the same category as Eddie Collins. Ed, Eddie Collins certainly was on some fantastic teams doing some fantastic play. And I'm, I'm guessing he was relatively well-known to general to general public in the 1910s, but he, his personality certainly wasn't one to embrace fame the way the Roots and DiMaggio's and even the Musials 
of, of yesteryear did with their fame. Infamy is sort of a different thing, but I think the Black Sox guy, Jules Joe Jackson, is very famous because of the scandal that surrounds him. And Barry Bonds, part of his fame comes from all the steroids. And he was being in not just baseball news, but being on national news coverage almost on a daily basis for a, a period of a couple of years there as well. Right. But again, it's the it's the actual days of coverage that are driving that. And one thing I point out in the book in regards to in regards to various records, home run records, single season records, that, that sort of thing is ultimately the only reason we care about baseball records is we care about the reputation of who holds them. We don't care so much about the doubles record because it's been held by Earl Webb as a single season record since the 1930s, and most people forget who Earl Webb is. That apparently is a very difficult record to beat because it's been held for 80-something years. Joe DiMaggio's hitting streak has been around for less time, but it takes on this mythic quality because of because it's part of Joe DiMaggio's story. And when we retell a famous player, Joe DiMaggio's story, it involves the hitting streak. So when anyone approaches that 56-game total, they're sort of inserting themselves into Joe DiMaggio's story. And so they, they get some fame in that way. Uh, Cal Ripken inserted himself into Lou Gehrig's story by, by approaching and then beating his consecutive game streak. We wouldn't... We don't care about a consecutive game streak before Lou Gehrig. Everett Scott had it, but we don't really care about Everett Scott as a public today. And so because Babe Ruth held so many records and was so much more famous than anybody else, any record he holds, and particularly the home run record, the public has an opinion on it in a way that they just don't for a bunch of other records. And so... Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa and Barry Bonds getting into kind of the modern iteration of the Babe Ruth story means that the public really cares about when steroid usage impacts home runs. They don't care when it affects really anything else. They just care when it affects home runs because they care about Babe Ruth and Babe Ruth's fame in in that sense. And that's, you know, we saw we saw the public get similarly and negatively invested when Hank Aaron was working on Babe Ruth's career home run total, the the death threats and the racism that came out, that's because the public were the public was inserting themselves themselves itself into into Hank Aaron's story because now he was touching on these hallowed things and the whole Ford Frick asterisk controversy. All all that is because Babe Ruth was that famous. And held so many records. And so people, he put meaning into those records. And really, that's true of all baseball stats, ultimately. We care about them for the stories they help tell. You've been listening to Brandon Islip. Brandon is the author of the book, Playing for a Winner. You can give him a follow on Twitter at EarthDieDread. Brandon, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Hey, thank you so very much. It's been great.